My name is Teresa Sandock. I'm a Servite sister from Wisconsin and a member of the board of the International Thomas Merton Society. Tuesdays with Merton is sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union. The webinars are scheduled to run on the second Tuesday of each month. When we launched Tuesdays with Merton four months ago, our nation was still reeling from the brutal murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis policeman. COVID deaths in the US had just topped 200,000. Today, that number has nearly doubled and shows no sign of abating. Less than a week ago, we witnessed the unimaginable scene of an armed mob storming our nation's capital, incited by the President of the United States. In times like these, I believe that we need voices like Merton more than ever to help us find our North Star. And now it is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. James Finley. At age 18, fresh out of high school, Jim joined the Abbey of Gethsemane, where for the next six years, he had the good fortune of having Thomas Merton as his spiritual director. Jim is a contemplative practitioner and clinical psychologist who helps seekers live in a contemplative whole life. He offers guidance for the spiritual journey through his website, online courses, occasional retreats, and the Center for Action and Contemplation, where he serves as a core faculty member with, Cynth with Cynthia Bourgeau and Richard Rohr. He is the author of several books, including Merton's Palace of Nowhere, The Contemplative Heart, and Christian Meditation, Experiencing the Presence of God. I was curious to know whether Merton had made any reference to Jim in his journals. In the monastery, Jim was known as Brother Finbar. Jim's first two appearances in Merton's journals come in volume five titled, Dancing in the Water of Life. On February 4th, 1964, Merton wrote, Brother Finbar made his profession. Some days later on March 14, 1964, he wrote, the abbot is getting rid of Finbar's pigs. There you are, Jim. And now here is Dr. James Finley speaking on turning to Thomas Merton as a trustworthy guide in the gentle art of contemplative living. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm so pleased we can be together here like this. And I begin with a, a short prayer. Lord God, we give you thanks for the desire for you that you placed in our hearts. And we give you thanks for Thomas Merton and for all the teachers who offer trustworthy guidance along the path that fulfills our consummated longings for your presence in our lives to experience to live and to share with others day by day. Um, you know, I, I thinking here what um, to share with you in, in the 30 minutes available. And um, I, I decided on uh, sharing with you um, what Thomas Merton has meant to me as a mystic teacher in my life. And uh, I also um, 
within the 30 minutes, we just don't have the time to look at passages in Merton uh, where he speaks of, of the of mystical contemplation and the mystical and how that overflows into our life. But um, just by, by reading New Seeds of Contemplation, by reading the inner experience, uh, in the series that I did with Sounds True on Merton's path to the Palace of Nowhere and in the passages to the Palace of Nowhere, you'll find an abundance of passages. What I want to do here is I want to limit myself to a personal experience uh, of the mystical and, and Thomas Merton as a mystic teacher uh, in my life and the effect that it has had on me. Um, because it's really, uh, it's always personal. The reality of it is always deeply personal. And so I'd like to share this personal account with you of Merton as a mystic teacher for me and how over the years I've experienced uh, as a mystic teacher for those who are interiorly drawn along these mystical dimensions of Christian life and of life. So I'll begin this way. Uh, you know, in our Catholic tradition, we say that uh, St. Francis of Assisi and Clare were mystics. And we say that St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila were mystics. We say that Meister Eckhart was a mystic. The author of the Cloud of Unknowing was a mystic. Uh, Julianne of Norwich and so on, down through the ages. And to um, the Desert Fathers and the Desert Mothers and uh, into Jesus spending all nights alone in prayer um, in this uh, communion with God that was his very identity. And so uh, God in each age, God raises up uh, uh, these mystics. And then in their writings, they offer trustworthy guidance for us, both on understanding what the mystical is and also how to discern when it's happening to us and discerning how it's happening to us, how we can be, how trustworthy guidance and how to respond to that and to be transformed in that and uh, how uh, the way we're meant to live out our life in the midst of the world. So in that sense then I wanna share with you for me personally, what was my first contact with this mystic way uh, through Thomas Merton. So a bit of background for me is um, I was born and raised in Akron, Ohio, 1943. As the oldest of six children, my father was a violent alcoholic. And so there was like ongoing violent abuse going on through the time I left home after I graduated from high school, really. My mother was a devout Roman Catholic and she uh, clung to her faith to give her the courage to get through the things that were happening to her and to her to six children. And uh, she taught me to do the same. So my prayer for me in the midst of the trauma was my lifeline. I kind of held on to it for dear life. And in that context, then when I was in the ninth grade, I was 14 years old, I was at an all boys Catholic school in Akron, Ohio. And um, someone in a ninth grade religion class mentioned monasteries and I'd never heard of monasteries before. And he said, monasteries, remember, where people go to um, find and seek and give themselves to God for their own salvation. And in ways that touches the whole world in ways we don't understand. 
And he mentioned Thomas Merton, who was a young man, Columbia University, felt called by God to live as a monk in the monastery. And that Thomas Merton had written his autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, which went on the New York Times bestsellers list, and went on to write many books that helped many people throughout the world uh, to uh, deepen their experience and response to God's presence in their lives. So that day after school, I went up to the school library and they had one book by Thomas Merton, uh, The Sign of Jonas, which is a journal he kept in the monastery. And on the first page of that journal, Thomas Merton says this, he says, he says, as for me, I have but one desire, the desire for solitude to disappear into the secret of God's face. And at 14 years old, I did not know what that meant. But something in me did and said, me too, me too. And it named me and it named me. And, um, for the next four years of high school, the violence got worse, actually. I read the sign of Jonas over and over and over. I prayed and uh, felt very called through that to go to the monastery. And my master plan was that I would enter the monastery, live there as a monk, and sit at Thomas Merton's feet and have him guide me into the secret of God's face. So what I'd like to do here is I'd like to look at this moment of awakening to the mystical as a certain experiential way of understanding that I think is true to the spirit of the classical teachings of the, of the, of the mystics, the kind of a mystical Catholicism and in concert with the mystical traditions of all the world's great religions. So I would put it this way, here's the poetry of it. And here I'm sharing with you what I learned at the monastery about the ancient wisdom of contemplative Christianity, like the spiritual worldview uh, of this vision. So here's the poetry of it. Um, imagine you start by drawing a, a small circle, the size of a quarter. And that small circle represents the innermost hidden center of yourself, one with God. When I was at the monastery, Daniel Walsh uh, taught uh, medieval philosophy there, Duns Scotus and Thomas Aquinas. And in following Duns Scotus, which has had a big effect on Thomas Merton's understanding of the true self, he says poetically that before creation, there was no capacity for love in God because God is octus plurissimus. God's the overflowing fullness of infinite love itself. If you have a glass and start filling it with water, and as, as it overflows, there's no room for water in the cup. So there's no capacity for love and in the infinite love of God. And therefore, God creates the capacity. God creates a kapox dei. God creates a capacity to receive the, infi the infinite fullness of the presence of God. And that's our deepest identity. That's, that's who we are, that capacity. Then God endows that capacity with the nature. And God endows it with the human nature, which is our humanity. It's the gift of our humanity. And so it's, it's the thinking me and all that it's, all the, it's the thinking us and all that we think, the remembering us and all that we remember, the desiring us and all that we desire, the emotional us and all that we feel, uh, our bodies and life, the human life on this earth as a gift of God and a gifted with reason. 
But the greatest gift in human nature, according to this tradition, is not reason, as, as, as gifted as that is. It's that we're, we're endowed by God and our nature to recognize the person. That is, we're endowed to realize that the, the infinite depths of God, by the generosity of God, is the infinite depths of ourself and our nothingness without God. And it flashes forth as a moment of, of oneness. And um, this, this, this flash of oneness, which is um, a kind of a, a, a taste of the mystical in us, happens in many ways. And at the end of New Seeds of Contemplation, uh, uh, on the, the general dance, Thomas Merton begins with saying, the world and time are the dance of the Lord in emptiness. The silence of the spheres is the music of a wedding feast. And so he's bearing witness to the already perfectly holy nature of manifested reality as God's manifested presence shining forth and being poured out as stones and trees and stars, the, the whole cosmic, the divinity of the cosmic uh, reality. <clears throat> And then he says, <clears throat> we do not have to go very far to catch echoes of that game and of that dancing when we are alone on a starlit night, when we see children in a moment, they're really children. In a moment, we know love in our own hearts. It flashes forth like this, and there's this taste. So from time to time, there's this taste of divinity, like the already perfectly holy nature of our life. It can come to us in the arms of the beloved. It can come to us in reading a child a good night story. It can come to us giving ourselves over to the smell of a blood red rose. It can come over us lying awake at night listening to the rain. It can come over us in a quiet hour at day's end. It can come over us sitting at the deathbed of a dying loved one. It flashes forth and it grants itself to us like a taste, a taste of something. When the taste is occurring, sometimes these awakenings are very intense, uh, but often they're subtle, very, 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 very subtle. And uh, we're, we're graced with this. And it's a foreshadowing of our eternal life that on this earth, we know God mediated through faith, through our nature, and uh, so we hear God loves us and through faith, the power of the spirit who dwells in our hearts, we're empowered to know that God does love us and we're moved by the spirit within us to then say yes to that love because love is always received, never imposed. And we're interiorly moved to give ourselves in love to the love that gives itself to us and to share it with others day by day. And this is our life on this earth. This is our life on this earth. So this is our faith, this, obs this obscure certainty in our hearts. The measure of this faith is love. We know that when we die and pass through the veil of death, we'll pass into unmediated, infinite union with the infinite and glory as our destiny. What Myrna is suggesting is that these little moments, these flashpoints of oneness, turning to see the flock of birds descending, and as if out of the corner of our eye, our, our heart catches a glimpse of something. And these moments were a momentary mystic. There's a momentary sense that nothing's missing anywhere. What a fool I am to worry so the way I sometimes do. I'm 
and then we we uh, we move on. What happens next? Sometimes nothing happens next. We we just we move on. But what happens? It happens again. It happens again. It happens again. And it can start to hallow our life, like life becomes translucent because the habit of this awareness is faith, and we have this hallowed sense of the nearness of God present to us in the concreteness of things like this. And then there can come a moment where we're touched with the mystical dimension of this, this oneness, and it goes so deep that as it passes, it, we realize that there's an, a longing to abide in the depths so fleetingly glimpsed, which is the past. That in my most childlike hour, in the hour of sorrow, in the hour of solitude, looking out the kitchen window, it flashed forth and granted itself to me. And I was granted a fleeting glimpse of that which I know in my heart, my life will be forever incomplete unless I learn to abide in that presence that I know is real because I tasted it for myself. And so how can I find someone well-seasoned in such things to help me stabilize in this desire? This is the Soto Zen master, Shunru Suzuki, says the primary task for the teacher in these traditions is to give witness to the seeker that what the seeker seeks is real, that you know your heart's desire, that is the desire to abide in an underlying habitual consciousness of the, of the divinity of every breath and heartbeat. Your heart has not deceived you because you sense you're sitting in the presence of someone with whom it's been realized. So I think this is who these mystic teachers are, really. I think they're, they're men and women such as ourselves who have been so surrendered over to this love as to be habitually established in it and established in it in ways that touches and transforms the world in ways we don't understand. And then some of these people are called to be mystic teachers. That is, they're called to, to speak to people who are being led by God along this path. Thomas Merton once said, he said, there's a lot of Catholics losing their faith and they're losing it in church because the church is not bearing witness to its own mystical lineage. They go into Buddhism or yoga or something, which is fine. And the soul knows where it needs to go to find what it needs to find. But the scandal of the church, it isn't bearing witness to this lineage. And uh, so I think then Thomas Merton is one of these teachers. So I think Thomas Merton is, is, a, is someone who's been transformed in this love unexplainably into this, like the divinity of himself and his nothingness without God. And then led by God and inspired by God to speak out of that, to touch, to touch us and illumine us. So you can tell when you read him that what he's saying is so beautiful and it's beautiful because it's true. You can't explain it, but it's true. And this is the intimacy of the way. And so with this said, then I'd like to go back then to this moment and um, this moment of, um, uh, of, uh, reading at uh, 14 years old, reading the sign of Jonas. Uh, as for me, I would one desire to be lost in the secret of God's face. I'd like to reflect with you on this moment because I thought about it a lot. And as I reflect upon it, I, I encourage you to think of these moments where, where you, your heart's been grazed by this awareness so that we can be by becoming students of these, of these moments, 
we might then understand the path along which we might be habituated in it. So here, here's, here, this is my meditation. It's, it's, this, this helps me to understand it. So here's a little circle, this innermost circle of this innermost one is the imminence of God as a kapok day. Here's a surrounding circle of my human nature, living my daily life. You live your life, I live my life. And then there's God who illumines us and shines illuminations into our nature, realizing the presence of God in our life and inspiring us to give ourselves to God, to walk this walk. And when we stumble and fall, as we often do, to find in Christ the good news that God's infinitely in love with us is unexplainably precious in our brokenness. And uh, we, we walk together and we walk our walk, knowing that when we die, we're not annihilated, but consummated. And when we pass through the veil of death into glory, our destiny will be fulfilled. And this is our life. I think this is our life efficacious unto holiness. But here's what I think happens in the, when it becomes mystical. Poetically, I would say this, that I, I, I want to think of myself here for a moment, that at 14 years old, when I read, as for me, Merton says, I have but one desire to be lost in the secret of God's face, the desire for solitude. And when I said me too, I would say poetically what happens in a mystical experience is a God who's beyond us, uh, shines right not into our reflective consciousness, but passes right through it like a shooting star into the innermost hidden center of ourselves. And God simultaneously from the hidden innermost center, like a shooting star, flashes out into God beyond us. And so the ego self is momentarily transfixed betwixt and between the divinity beyond us and within us and Augustine is closer to us than we are to ourselves. But it's even deeper than that. It's not betwixt and between, but we momentarily sense in a way we can't explain that God's the infinity of the intimate immediacy of our very presence and our nothingness without God, like that. And In such moments, and I think many people have these moments actually, there can start to grow in a person then a, a desire to, to abide in the depth so fleetingly glimpsed. That, that there's a certain, it's like a longing I don't understand for a union I don't understand, but I know it's true because I've experienced it. I will not play the cynic. I will not break faith with my awakened heart. And so there's the inner integrity of how do I follow this path like this? So where can I find the one well seasoned, the teacher? And for me, it was clear that it was Thomas Merton. And so when I graduated from high school, in the midst of the ongoing nightmare of the trauma, I, I entered the monastery as 18 years old. This is a cloistered Trappist monastery, getting up at 2.30 in the morning and chanting the Psalms and uh, life of silence and so on. So when I went in to see Thomas Merton, this was a big moment for me because this person who, see, I, I put it this way, I put it, I wanna go back to this moment again. 
that when Merton said, as for me, I have but one desire, the desire for solitude, he spoke out of the depths of his heart surrendered over into the mercy of God and deep calls unto deep. The depth from which the words come in such a person have the power to awaken that same depth in the listener and each unto each, there's a mutual awakening that takes place like this. So that we hear in the voice of the teacher, the cadences of God's voice speaking to us and naming us and marking us with this desire, this path. And so there I was in the monastery, I was 18, just out of high school, severe post-traumatic stress disorder and didn't know it. And I wanted to see Thomas Merton. And because of my trauma, I had issues with authority figures. So when I started to talk to him, it was so numinous for me to be with him that I was actually with him, I couldn't believe it. But because of the trauma, my voice started shaking. I started hyperventilating. And I can remember I felt uh, embarrassed, really, because I wanted him to think well of me. And there I was letting him see the way I really was inside, the way I so wanted not to be, but I was. And then he said something to me that really changed my life. And this is what masters do so masterfully in seeing my fear. It was a lot of farms there at the, at the monastery. I worked in the pig barn at the time. And he said, uh, every day at the end of afternoon work, I want you to end early before, and come in here before Vespers. And I want you to come in here and tell me one thing that happened at the pig barn that day. And I can remember as soon as he said that, I can remember thinking, I can do that. And what he did is he leveled the playing field for me. And what it did is it opened up for me where I could start to let him know about my longings for God and the journey that I had been on like this. And I have to say this too, for all the years that I've studied Thomas Merton and the books and all, I mean, all of that, I don't know if anything went so deep as that moment in talking about the pigs at the big barn, because that's humility, that the gods, that God's infinitely in love with the invincible preciousness of ourself so that the very preciousness, the very fragility we're so ashamed of is the very fragility that God's waiting for us to accept, that God's waiting in there for us to embrace us as endlessly precious in our brokenness. It's the mystery of the cross, really. I think it's the mystery of love crucified like this. And, um, I, I engaged in this guidance then with Thomas Merton. And one of our talks we were having, which just so meant the world to me, he said to me, you know, he said, once in a while, you'll find someone with whom you can talk about such things. He said, but they're hard to find. Either because they don't know anything about it, they can tell you, you can put it off till later. But there's the imperative of the awakened heart. You see, for this thing that you often we don't have anyone to talk to. He said, and that's your solitude. That's your solitude. And in that solitude, you learn to depend on God to guide you in the fragility and the poverty of your day by day, in your prayer and your meditation, your practice and how you live that every day. Which I found to be true. The next thing Merton did for me is he led me to these classical texts 
And he also led me to the Gospels. You know, if you take St. John of the Cross, for example, the collected works, you would underline every scripture quote in red. And then you would underline, say, in pink, where he's commenting on scripture, like the mystical depth dimension of Christ consciousness, and fan through the works. It's like a scripture commentary uh, on the mystical dimensions of discipleship and of all of life. And so he led me first to, uh, to St. John of the Cross and Teresa and these people. And I can remember once, uh, first time I took God's St. John of the Cross, I went out into the woods and I would sit at the base of a tree and I opened up St. John of the Cross, 16th century. And I read the first paragraph out loud to myself. And it was the same voice that Thomas Merton spoke in, that it was the timeless lineage of mystical Christianity handed down through the ages into our own age, into our own heart like this. And so with Teresa and so with Eckhart and these people, it was so, you know, so amazing for me. And um, uh, another thing that I got, I learned from Merton in this deepening transformative thing is that Thich Nhat Hanh came. From then he, he was still living in Vietnam during the Vietnam War before he went to Plum Village. And um, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel came, the Jewish mystic and philosopher. Abraham Joshua Heschel came and visited Merton. And a little story about Abraham Joshua Heschel is um, when he was with Heschel in the guest house, they would, these visitors would come to see Merton. They, the abbot arranged they could have dinner together. And the story is, is that uh, they set up uh, in the guest house, they set up, they put out china and so on. And Merton and Heschel were sitting there and the lay brother uh, wheeled in their meal and uh, to prepare for them to have together so they could talk. And Heschel, Abraham Joshua Heschel told the lay brother, he said, I'll let you serve us dinner. If when we're finished, you sit down and let me serve you and you join us. And Thomas Merton said, told us that story. He said, that's the spiritual life right there. See, it's marked by that kind of sensitivity to the, to the holiness that's waiting to be recognized and invited in the ordinariness of our, and it's us too. Um, uh, there was Sufi Misty. He was corresponding with Hafiz and with the Sufis. And he was corresponding. Uh, a yogi came from India to found an ashram. And Merton took a small group of us up to the front porch of his hermitage. And the yogi, uh, we did some asanas together and Pantajali's Yoga Sutra and, and so on. And so what Merton, uh, what, what, what Merton, uh, what Merton saw really is that the, <clears throat> there's a convergence of these mystical lineages that lie at the heart of all the traditions. So the more that we're faithful to the mystical consciousness of Christ, the more we recognize, the, and he said, the world will not survive religion based on ego consciousness through the ideologies of God. But if those in each tradition find that once you're surrendered over to God unexplainably out of their tradition, we see the affinity of all the traditions and how it spills over into the whole world. Like this. And uh, 
another thing that I think too for me is that um, I uh, uh, was uh, at the monastery. I was so into this and um, I want to watch my time <laughs> this this way and uh, I uh, at this time I, I, I think this was it for me really I was if I would have stayed on this path um, I would have gone on to be ordained and gone sent to Rome for further studies I thought I wanted to be a hermit I thought I wanted to come back and be a hermit and I just thought it was just was my way really and then I was traumatized in the monastery by one of the monks there and uh, I decompensated and I fell apart and all the trauma came out I didn't tell anybody what happened I went up to Merton's Hermitage the night before I left I didn't tell him either and uh, I said I need to go home and face my father and square things off and he gave me the address of a hermit, Tom Winandi. <laughs> he says, you know, go up and continue on with your inner life like this. I, that's, I thought that I would do that, really. But when I, I, I came back out, I, I, I didn't do that. And I um, went through a long wayward path, really, and got into a very dysfunctional, broken marriage, two children by that marriage. And um, I wrote Merton's Palace of Nowhere in the midst of this all this confusion that I was in and uh, I wrote from my heart about that and then when that book came out I started to get invitations I was a high school religion teacher I was writing high school religion textbooks with Michael Pennock at St. Ignatius High School in Cleveland and, and uh, I started getting invitation to give retreats around the country in Canada and I would give these silent retreats because I found where there are people in the world. Thomas Merton once said, there are many people who are called to this inner mystic way and there's no one to bear witness to them. He said, it's one of the scandals of the church, really. And so I would lead these silent retreats. They'd all be in silence. The mules were in silence. There was a 20 minute sit before each talk. And I would speak from my heart in passages from Merton and John of the Cross and Eckhart, these ninjas, and let it shine on the life of the people of how they could live a deeply contemplative life in the midst of the world. And I told them this too, and Merton told me this once in the monastery. Um, he, he said, you know, uh, that uh, he said, you did not come here to this monastery to breathe the rarefied air beyond the suffering of this world. You were led here by God so that in the silence of this monastery, you might feel the suffering of the whole world in your heart. Otherwise, he said, there's no validity in living in a place like this. Unless you surrender yourself over to the sustaining mercy of God, see, you won't be able to bear it. But if you bear it, the mystery of Christ crucified can shine forth from your life and can touch the whole world in ways that you do not understand. That our ministry is not limited to where we live. It's boundaryless in all directions and our fidelity to this. And so really, this is my, this is my thought here on this for us, is that um, uh, in, these, in the retreats that I've given and, and so on, is that, is that I, th I think there are, there are people who are being gently led to this. 
but it never imposes itself. It's unexplainably intimate and tender-hearted, and it touches us and it calls us to itself. And what we find in Thomas Merton is trustworthy guidance along the path that habituates us in this love that utterly transcends this world. And, and in transcending it, not that we would leave it behind, reaching mystical union, I'm out of here, but just the opposite. By, very, by transcending, being transcended into this infinite love permeating us through and through and through and through, it beckons us, the imperative of our heart, to circle endlessly back around, to walk this earth the way Christ did, who's, in, who's infinitely in love with us is infinitely precious in the midst of our wayward ways. And how can I then let my fidelity to this inner love, this alchemy of being transformed in this love, how can I let it touch and transform and illumine um, the way I am in my most solitary hour, the way I am reading a child a good night story, the way I am in the arms of the beloved, the way I am in the presence of the person who uh, has wronged me? How, how can I? How can I uh, look out of the broken world, so broken, and how can I establish the taproot of my heart in this love that sustains me in the brokenness, that I may be for and with the hurting world as Christ was for and with the hurting world, like this. So this is this is what it's been for me, really. I think I, I in a kind of a personal. Uh, sense. And uh, over the years in my silent retreats, and also I work with trauma, uh, people trauma, and they would come saying they wanted their spirituality to be a resource in their trauma. So sitting with these trauma survivors, and I'm a trauma survivor, and sitting with these people in the midst of the world called to this, and where these two realms touch each other, like the alchemy of our heart, the mystery of love crucified, it is just really I don't know, it is so, it's a world to me. I'm so grateful for it. And then when I met Richard Rohr, and I was, I felt so honored to be invited by him to this thing of uh, contemplative Christianity in the midst of the world. Uh, my marriage here with my wife, she just died ago. And she was very much this way. And we, we both did contemplative spiritual direction together. And we did psychotherapy and, and she's passed on now. So I think life for all of us is so mysterious and we're being led by God down into the depths where our poverty opens out upon the mercy and tender heartedness of God. So that by being transformed in that, we might pass it on to others day by day by day by day. So those are my thoughts. Thank you so much, Jim, for sharing not only about your own life, but about the things that you've been taught and can in turn share with us. We have a few questions as we interact now in a more dialogical form. Um, first question, for people who may be presently struggling with psychological problems and traumas, how do you see that pertaining to the mystical way that you talked about, maybe in some practical ways? Yes, you know, uh, on my website that I got now through Richard Rohr on uh, I think it's jamesfinley.org, I think it is, 
on these mystical traditions. Uh, I'm also working on um, the spiritual depth dimensions of healing trauma. And a lot of people who came to me for therapy, they wanted their spirituality to be a resource in their therapy. And so we don't have the time to launch into all this here, but I, I would just put it this way. Um, oh, there's my <laughs> warning sign about our time. Um, first of all, uh, be sure in the, in the ongoing internalized effects of past traumas and abandonments that you're doing to, to get the best to get the help that you need with someone who can walk that walk with you and who's trained to help you in the healing of internalized trauma and abandonment, depression, anxiety, addiction, whatever form it takes in you, be sure you're, you're addressing that and doing your best to get that kind of help. Next, either if you can find a clinician who's trained also and is grounded in the spiritual to integrate those two, that if not, find, a, find a, a director, find somebody who can help you be stabilized in God's presence in your life as it's given to you to that so that you can see where those two realms touch each other. And uh, to work on that as an integrative process. And I, it's a very brief way of, of uh, responding to that. that. That be sure you do your homework in, in dealing with what you need to deal with, um, where you hit tripwires and get re-traumatized and it takes all kinds of forms. So you're getting help to be healed for that. And then how to sink the taproot of your heart in the presence of God to give you the strength and the courage and the guidance. And as you go through that process, discovering what can often happen, you just start discovering this mystical dimension I've been talking about shining out through the healing edges of your traumatized heart, that these two realms mysteriously kind of touch each other, I think. So I'd answer that way. Uh Perhaps even a follow-up question. We've all heard about post-traumatic stress syndrome. Yes. I think there's also something called the post-traumatic growth syndrome. Yes. Are you aware of that? And is that, are you talking something about that in, in your own spiritual way with the mystic way? Yes. You know, I'm writing a book now uh, on this. It's in two volumes, really. The first one is I'm sharing my personal story of this. And then the second volume is more on uh, more, it goes into more realms for contemplative clinicians. See how to be a contemplative healer and how to see the mystical contemplative dimensions of your healing path and pass it on to others. So, but but, I, but I, I would say, I would say yes, um, that, that for me is that um, I, I've seen this often, so often with people that, that as they go through the, if, you, if, we, if, 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 we, if, we re, if we reveal to someone that within us would church the most in the presence of someone who will not invade us or abandon us, we can learn not to invade or abandon ourselves. I wanna go even deeper. If we, if we reveal ourselves, the wounded places inside to someone who cannot, will not invade us or abandon us, we can come upon within ourselves the pearl of great price, the invincible preciousness of ourself in our brokenness. See, that's, and I think that's the mystery of love crucified, kind of shining out into a kind of a blessedness which shines out through the brokenness of our own heart. And then I think we're called to pass that on to others. It takes one to know one. 
takes one to know one. How can I help somebody? How can I be present with each person in their pain that they can see reflected in my eyes? I see the preciousness of who they are in their pain. And seeing by that preciousness, they might learn to start to see it more clearly themselves and walk the walk. I think this is how we pass it on in a traumatized world. That's great. Here's another question I really like from one of our participants. Why don't churches teach this mystical way? <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot of people that are losing their faith and they're losing it in church. And uh, I, I think because the church isn't teaching this. I once, there's a good friend of mine in Cleveland, Father Donald Cousins uh, in the Cleveland Diocese, longtime friend of mine. He had a lovely book on the priesthood and he taught at John Carroll University, great longtime friend of mine. And he was at a retreat I gave in Cleveland. Um, and uh, <clears throat> uh, he, um, we were talking about, he said, um, <clears throat> Um, you know, how, 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 how come, you know, you're, you're talking like this, see, to um, those who are drawn to be on your retreat. See, otherwise, he wouldn't have come. It's a silent retreat. There were on 100 people or so there. And he said, why are you talking to them? I said, because it's hard for them to find anybody to talk to them. It's hard to find any, where, how can I speak from my heart on how invincibly loved I am in my wayward ways? And how can I let that tender mercy shine in me and bear witness to it in my daily practice, in the teaching and in the path? How can I do that? And I said, that's, that's why. It, it isn't that it's not going on, it is. I think there are people in ministry, like they're grounded in their, they have the taproot of their heart in this contemplative dimension. And in preaching and in ministry, they bear witness to it. They do, you know, they really do. But I, I do think through a centering prayer, uh, Thomas Keating and Basil Pennington movement, contemplative Catholicism, uh, and uh, John Maines, his work, Richard Rohr, The Living School, uh, there are these people who bear witness to the mystical contemplative dimensions of our hearts and uh, how we can bring the deep healing of that to bear into a hurting world. So it's there, yeah. Good answer. Another one asks, near the end of your talk, you are talking about the spirituality of Christ, of Christ the mystic teacher, yeah. as it were. Can you say more, please? I'll give a poetic image that I use of this, like a guided imagery. Um, imagine in a kind of guided imagery that you're out alone in the garden where Christ would go to pray. And it's a full moon and you know that Christ is there and your heart is troubled, your heart is troubled. And you're looking, 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 looking and there in the moonlight, 
you see him sitting there at the edge of a clearing like this. And you also know, like in a waking dream, within a dream, you also know he knows that you're there and that he's waiting for you there. And you walk across the clearing and you kneel on the ground at his feet and you can feel him putting his hand on your shoulder. And you whisper in his ear the burden of your heart that you cannot bear. And he listens. And then he leans real close to you and he whispers to you that would set your heart free. Tell me, what's he say? Like this. See, I, I, I think the whole mystery of love crucified, the whole mystery is that the, the, the overwhelming love of God is waiting for us in the deep acceptance of the most broken places in our heart because God's infinitely in love with us and wholly permeates our fragility through and through and through and through and through. That's experiential salvation like this. And to taste that, which is mercy, then we can draw this, my own time preserve it world of time intervenes uh, is that <clears throat> see and then what i do the more i give myself over to that the more i lean into it and the more i'm transformed in this love i realize the more that it soaks into me and starts touching the hurting places of my mind and heart and when i lean into the hurting places i start getting overwhelmed with trauma or abandonment whatever it is so i stop and I go back and I resync the taproot of my heart in this infinite mercy. And then I come back again to where I left off in the hurting places. And that's the contemplative ministry of Christ's consciousness to the wounded places in our heart. And uh, it's a very intimate thing. And the value of someone well-seasoned in this who can help us with this, because they've been through it too. Uh, and we, we do our best, we find our way. How is it even, we'll put it another way. For all those that are listening to this right now, and for all those who are getting some sense of the intimations of what I'm alluding to, how has it come to pass that you're able to discern within yourself what I'm talking about? If it's not the way that you too have been touched by this, that you too are drawn to this. And I think that's really what it is. It's it's the vulnerable uh, sincerity that we return over and over to sink the taproot of our heart in childlike prayer, to give ourselves over to this love that gives itself over to us in our brokenness. We return to the teachings, which are the gospels and the teachings of the mystics to bear witness to this. And then we're called to translate that into uh, how we live when we stand up and walk out the door because everybody we meet is another edition of ourselves, someone God's infinitely in love with, who's been overtaken by the burdens of their brokenness. And how might we, by the way we look at them and listen to them and work with them, how can we help each other kind of sift all this out and see the tenderness that shines through the broken places? It's, it's kind of like that, I think. It's really very good. As long as your timer goes off and you're willing to keep talking, we're going to do it for another 10 minutes or so. When mine sure. goes off, 
we're done. Okay. I, I say, let me know because I set aside the evening for this. And, yeah. And uh, yeah. and I would turn. Sorry for the timer. I don't know how to turn it. Uh, no, that's anyway, fine. I won't bother. If it goes off, it's fine. You just let me know when we're done. But that's celebrity. But you, the time to spend the night with us. You're in California, so you got more time than some of us. So. Yeah, yeah, I do. Here's a yeah, question. I have nowhere to go. I have nowhere to go. Yeah. Here's a question I, I really like. How would you speak to the role community plays in this mystical and healing experience? I'd put it this way. I'd put it this way. It's seeing that each one of us is a unique addition of this story. That what we're talking about now is playing itself out as my life, is playing itself out as your life. And that's the thing, really, I think. As we learn to listen to each other and walk with each other and listen, and, and um, the, the, the closer we listen and pick up the resonances and the layered implications in their voice and the sideways glance and the tone of it, we realize that our lives are interwoven with each other in this mystery we're woven into each other as infinitely loved in the midst of our wayward ways and so the more clear i can be with myself as someone in my brokenness that god loves through and through and through and through and through and through and through, and through in my brokenness and the more i can be surrendered over to being so taken by this love in my brokenness the more readily i can discern that same love in each person I meet, you know, the pause in their voice, the sideways glance, the intimation of something, and we can calibrate our heart to ever finer scales of empathic resonance uh, with, the, with the encounter with each person that we meet. Yeah. See, that's Thomas Merton, you know, that famous story of his conversion story on uh, where he was waiting at the crowded intersection in downtown Louisville, he went in for medical treatments. And standing there waiting for the light to change, he suddenly realized that he was in love with all those people. And, uh, and so he wrote Seeds of Destruction. And he wrote Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. And he wrote about the presence of Christ shining forth in a broken world. And how can we be a leaven in the dough and be present to that world and share this mercy with them by passing on what's been shared to us? Like that. I think it's kind of like that. It's great. This is a different kind of question, Jim. Can you share with us about the mystery of death, of what the questioner says, of what is undying? Yes. Where this? Because my wife died. She died right here in the living room. We were very close, and the poignancy of, of this right now. is um, I, I, here's one way that I put it. Here's one way that I put it. Uh, there was a monk who died at the monastery, this old lay brother who died. And, and uh, he was, Merton was giving a talk to the novices about death. And uh, he said, you know, he said, don't think that when you die, you, we go somewhere. Like we orbit the earth a few times and take off and go to God. <laughs> like there's God over there. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is within us. See. In God, we live and move and have our being. See. 
We're living our life in the vast interiority of God. All the angels are here. All the saints are here. The deathless beauty of all those who have gone before us are right here with us. God closer to us than we are to ourselves. All these are woven into this mystical togetherness like this. And so the real death then that we're called to is how can I die to the elude, to the tyranny and the illusion that anything less than the deathless nature of love is real. Here's another way that I put it. <clears throat> uh, Thomas Merton once said, he said, imagine you're really into this mystical stuff. Like I'm all in, like help me. <laughs> and um, imagine you're praying and seeking and striving like this. And, um, um, and you cross over into the finish line, into God, like you cross over into God. And as soon as you cross over into the mystery of God, you realize that God's drawing you to cross back over into God's unexplainable oneness in the heart of each person that you meet. You know, in the tears of a person, an old person struggling to get to their feet, uh, holding a newborn infant in your arms, looking up and seeing the sun move across the sky. You see the God-given godly nature shining forth in the intimate immediacy of this world. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, really. You know what I mean? I mean, the, it's, it's kind of like that, I think. You know. um, Another person has asked, during the pandemic, I was drawn to the rosary. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on using the rosary in your relationship? I, I, yes, I do. I love the rosary. I sleep with it every night. I, I wrap it around my hands. I love the rosary. I don't say it anymore, but I like a sacramental. I love it because look what the rosary is really. It is it, the Hail Mary. The Hail Mary is really the first half of the prayer is the voice of an angel. And the second half is our response to the angel. And so in the Hail Mary, God speaking to us in our response to God is, in, is, is in, oh, there's my, there's the alarm I couldn't turn off. It is. As I, so we, we hold the crucifix and we bless ourselves with it and kiss it like this, the mystery of love crucified. We say the Lord's Prayer of faith, hope, and charity, three Hail Marys. And then we start around to the joyful mysteries. And in the joyful mysteries to the sorrowful mysteries, through the sorrowful mysteries to the glorious mysteries. And little by little, we can see the circularity of life and death. See, little by little, through the rosary, like the mantra, of the rosary, we can see the circularity and interpenetration of birth and death shining out through the life. And so the, the, the rosary has can be a very mystical prayer, really. If we look on the Hail Mary as a mandala, you know, as a mantra, rather than the cross as the great mandala of the deathless nature of love. And some people, it's, it can be a very deep path to say the rosary mystically like that. Okay. I think what often happens if we say the rosary this way is uh, you get around to, into your third Hail Mary, the Annunciation, and you sit there for 20 minutes with it because you're being touched by the mystery of the Annunciation of God speaking to you in the midst of the Annunciation. See that the angel is speaking to our hearts in every moment. And so the prayer becomes more and more infused with this contemplative wordlessness like this can become a, a 
and comfortable way to pray. You know, it's a beautiful prayer. Sadly for me and probably for many others, this one's going to be the last question. You took us into the monastery as what, 18 year old to be with Merton. <clears throat> Somebody's asked a good question to finish off the other end you've shared about your wife. What would you suggest to someone exploring and balancing a contemplative life within a marriage? Yes. You know, uh, I would say, put it this way, uh, for someone who's drawn this way, for someone who's drawn in this contemplative dimension, they're drawn to see how their marriage is a sacrament of this dimension. That, 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 that they and the spouse, their union with each other is a sacrament of Christ's love for the church, concretely. And so if, if you're fortunate, by the way, if you're drawn very much this way and your partner isn't this way, that's okay as long as they respect that you are this way. Sure. You might be drawn this way and they respect that's one of the things they love about you. You can also see God's drawing them in another way and you, you love each other and you love all that. And, uh, but if, the, if, the per, if you are very much this way and the other person is cynical towards this or disrespectful towards this, they really, you know, you can see for someone who is this way, but for a person so fortunate, I know because my first marriage was, was disaster this way, the marriage ended and, and I, I met Maureen and we were together for almost 30 years and we were very much this way <laughs> together. And so um, we're, we're like a mystical marriage, see, a mystical marriage. If, if there is that grace to sit with someone like that in wordless silence infused with love and to know that the wordless silence infused with love keeps recreating and awakening the two people, how God, how Christ is incarnate in their love for each other. And then when they go out to the children or through the day, they know that it's just habituated patterns of that love and the intimate details of their life. And then the next morning they sit down and do their sit together, their quiet sit, and uh, they share with each other and they head out again. And so little by little, even the day's most incidental moments, cooking dinner together, sitting silently in a room, tucking the children in, they recognize the reverberations of the divinity of the incarnate immediacy of the holiness of their life with each other. And as they grow old with each other and for each other, they recognize it's become so unexplainably deep and, and like be, beyond what words can say. And in the death of the beloved, they know in their heart the deathless beauty of the beloved. And uh, so it's like, uh, it's like a mystical marriage. And uh, so I, I would say that. Some people are fortunate enough to have that. I was, in my second marriage, I was. Some people aren't, but that's okay. I, I think as long as it's healthy and you're good to each other and real, you respect the other person's way to be a good person. Because that's how God's leading your partner. That's God how leading them. And they respect you. It gets into a problem if they disrespect this way about you and other things. You need to, you know, marriage counseling. <laughs> like we, we need help here thank you so much it's been wonderful you're so glad i was invited to do this thank you so very much it was a gift for me thank you
Thank you, Jim, for speaking to us from your heart and awakening the imperative in our own hearts. We've been deeply blessed by your gentle words this evening. I also want to thank Peter Cunningham at the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union for his technical support and for his behind the scenes helper, Father Dan Horan, who is um, a professor at CTU. And he is also a member of the International Thomas Merton Society and um, a member of the planning committee. Also thanks go out to Bob Grip who posts the webinars on YouTube and Mark Mead, who posts them as podcasts. You'll be able to find those uh, by going to the International Thomas Merton website. And registration is now open for the February 9th webinar, which will feature Dr. Christine Bochen. She's going to speak about Created for Joy, Becoming Who We Are Together. To register, go to merton.org ITMS. So for now, goodbye, stay safe, and practice the gentle art of contemplative living until we see you in February. <laughs>